uh, last weekend, I actually was, so I was tra mentioned travel, so this past weekend traveled down uh, to Bradenton, Florida. I know that's a hard thing, right? So anyway, we went down to Florida. Uh, now, I could tell you, honestly, I liked it better when I was in Vermont traveling to Florida, but anyway, so uh, we went down to Florida for a conference, really not, well, they don't even call it a conference, and rightly so. What they refer to it is as a pastor's fellowship. And so Arch Ministries, which is a ministry that comes out of Cleveland, uh, really out of Mentor, Ohio, uh, Pastor Tim Potter, uh, years ago, well, started Arch Ministries. I first got associated with it in 2014 um, and began to uh, go to their, their, their annual fellowship. It is a really encouraging time because it is a fellowship. It's a little less, I mean, it is still exhausting, but it's not the same as when you go from, you know, to main session, to workshop, to main session, to workshop, to main session, to workshop all day long. At the end of it, you fall down and go do it again the next day. And somewhere in there, you know, you get numb on both ends. So anyway, so <laughs> that product happens and say, this one's a lot different. So we have a session, only three general sessions, a lot of time to actually hear reports of what God is doing all over the country and disciple-making as well as at the end of disciple-making is church planning. The heart of Arch is ultimately to get in partnership with like-minded churches, identify them, strengthen them, partner together, give to them, with the end being that we all plant churches together. And really one of the positive influences or impacts have been uh, just encouragement to be uh, to actually have some interdependency. We've been good at being independent churches. We do believe that churches should be independent in the sense we don't have an outside agency telling us what we ought to believe and what we practice. So we hold to the autonomy of the local church, but sometimes we've been a little too autonomous. Sometimes we actually haven't done well at actually partnering with our brothers and sisters in Christ for the advance of the gospel. And, and so that's kind of one of the big emphasis there. And just one of the encouraging things that came away, God's doing things internationally. Arches actually through the missions of churches that are a part of Arch now. Uh, internationally. So this year, and I was encouraged by this, 400 churches in Germany, gospel preaching churches, are uniting together to be challenged in the area of disciple making in Germany for the cause of replicating churches throughout all of Germany. 400 churches representing over 2,400 believers. That's an amazing thing. Folks, God's doing great things around the world. Don't let the, uh, the negative press that we probably rightly have about American culture right now get you too discouraged because God is doing great things around uh, the world. So one of the statements that Tim made, and it does tie to our, our uh, sermon today, and I like to do this, always did, even as a pastor, as God convicts my heart, I like to share conviction with you, all right? So uh, one of the things he made a statement is that we... Uh, we begin guilty. There's a period of time, and we probably come through it. Not that it's all together, not there, but basically, we went a little deeper in our churches, and we went deeper theologically, be better equipped. And there's a good response. I'm actually going to speak into some of those issues that flooded there, but in doing so, we got a lot narrower with the gospel. There was, I, I remember, so pastoral ministry, a little over 30 years in total. Uh, 25 as a senior pastor, but one of the, just both experientially plus books read on this topic, we went through a period of time where some theology in terms of the gospel, and it began to flesh out in some pretty poor gospel techniques, if you can put it that way, pretty poor uh, approaches to the gospel. And so that resulted in there was an easy believism movement. It got popular in the church growth movement. Uh, the church was, and people would say, the church grew a mile wide and an inch deep. Basically, the statement is there's a whole lot of people identifying with Christ, but there's not a lot of Christ-like living. Statistics began to be studied. The Barna organization pops up. Other organizations begin to study. They come back and tell us that the church isn't living much different than the culture around it. 
And here's one of those thesis statements that we rightly concluded. If your Christianity actually doesn't make you different the world around you, it's because you actually don't have Christ. You can't possibly have Christ and the Spirit dwelling in you and still live like a pagan culture. It's just not possible. So we began to sharpen the gospel. We began to dig in deeper, realize discipleship wasn't going real well. Studies proved it, so we're going to do discipleship. But one of the things we did is we segregated out the Great Commission. See, we came to the Great Commission that calls us to go make disciples. We understood the imperative, go make disciples. And then we really focused on the teach aspect. So we began to really focus in on edification. And so churches, we'd say some churches were more evangelistic, some churches were more discipleship. And we kind of segregated in the idea of making disciples that teaching becomes one of those ways you're doing it. And so we're obedient here. Evangelism became the ministry of the minority. In fact, it often was presented, and I've seen it in ministry presentations, that at the end of maturity, so here's one of those things, you come to Christ, you should move in, in your step up to a, a level of commitment that would bring you into a church membership, you should step up beyond that into some level of service and get active in your church, uh, but kind of like the home run, if you will, or the end goal would be eventually you're going to take the gospel to others, like that's the mark of maturity we get there. And what we learned through that process is plenty of people are, are content to either measure maturity another way or never get there. So evangelism, we thought, was, well, if we teach people well enough, we'll get evangelistic people. It didn't happen. So we've had this tendency, and I could illustrate a number of ways, but the tendency is we find a problem that exists over here, so we swing the pendulum like way over here on the other side. So we've done that in several ways, emotionalism. You know, I can't, just came from the Northeast. I'm just telling you, in the Northeast, they're kind of stoic anyway. But when you take a church culture that basically says emotionalism's like taboo because we don't want to be charismatics, then stoicism became the mark of spirituality. So we sit on our hands, and if anybody ever dared to like raise their hand or say a hallelujah or say even amen, it's like taboo. You don't do that in our church. I literally used to put up, I used to make people practice. I won't do this to you, okay? But I made them practice saying amen in church. And in fact, it got so to the place that our sound people actually started, and I'm not asking you guys to do this, please don't, okay? They actually inserted in the middle of my PowerPoint slides that would say amen. <laughs> and so sometimes I just have to teach people, you know, I made that point, okay, uh, and I just wait and look at them. And they, somebody would go, amen. I said, oh, thank you. And then we'd finally get people to say something. But you know, if the truth of God doesn't impact our heart, did it impact us? Stoicism's not the mark of your spirituality. Neither is radical, raw emotionalism. You can be manipulated emotionally. I get it. We don't want to do that. But if we don't have emotional response to truth, then were we just hearers? We just left it on the table. And so in that pole swinging, so we took the Great Commission. You know the command is to go make disciples. That's the imperative, so go. So go became defined, and I'm looking at our missionary brother right here, and we defined that's a missional text. Well, it is a missional text, but for who? Well, the missionaries, because they're the ones going. And so the way we go is we put money in the offering, and especially if we put above a tithe and we give it to, to missions, and I have a build mission support, I have a heart for missions, and so we're supporting missions all over the world, so we're going. 
And then we came back and said, well, maybe it's just as you go. So it's not necessarily saying, well, you're going, because everybody's not going to foreign field. We get that. So it's as you're going. So as I'm going, I'm going to be making disciples. And, and then I primarily focused that on teaching. So I'm doing that. And what we missed is there's an imperatival force to going. And there's a paralytical activity which make disciples, which involves you in gospel ministry with the lost. In fact, it is a call to be intentional in outreach to the lost. I could go down the whole stream of separation, getting swung to a level where we actually stop getting involved in unsaved people's lives. And we got so busy, we created counter-church culture. So we have church activity upon church activity. We forgot that the Great Commission is a call for you and I. Because remember, Acts 1.8, the Spirit's going to come and you will be witnesses. Not you might be, not you should be, you will be. That starts in Jerusalem at home, then expands and continues to expand. So there's a call to intentional gospel ministry that is upon all of us. And we've been called to engage with intentionality in the culture in which God's given us to be disciples who actually make other disciples. You add to that, we now live in a counterculture, a cancel culture that wants to silence you. Your Christianity is okay for you and your church. Keep it in the walls of your church. We'll be okay with it. Don't speak it in the public square. Don't dare step out in the community. Don't do that because you're going to be offensive to people when you don't hold their values and their views. So we have a cancel culture and we have rising even laws to try and punish Christianity. So we live in that culture. We refine the gospel down to the activity of being taught. We measure maturity by the amount of Bible knowledge we have rather than the obedience to the knowledge we've been given. And we don't engage with intentionality in a culture filled with lost people who need someone to love them enough to show them Jesus. And we call it church. And Paul is writing in 2 Timothy a farewell letter. We often talk about the passing of the baton and, and passing on. And Paul had long since, Timothy had been trained, discipled by Paul, personally mentored entrusted with the gospel. There was no one, Paul said, quite like Timothy. There were other men he had discipled, and he loved them dearly, but somehow Timothy just stood out. And in that standing out, Timothy is one to which now as Paul is about to face his own death, his departure, he now is speaking to Timothy, and that's the context in which he's writing. And in the theme, so really in 1 Timothy you remember his letter, he, he, he challenged him not to let anybody despise his youth. He told him not to neglect the gift he'd been given for teaching God's word and for exhorting God's church. And he tells him he must keep close watch on himself and persevere in the midst of growing opposition. And I say all that because it ties to our text this morning. But as he opens up 2 Timothy, uh, he really has a real sweet reminder there to Timothy as he describes him. He says, you're my beloved child. And then he goes on to tell him how much he, he thanks God for him and he regularly prays for him. I, I mean, as a pastor for many years, I knew the prayer warriors in every church that I pastored. Those folks were always an encouragement to me because I knew they were going to be praying regularly for me in the ministry of the word. And I pray the gateway is filled with prayer warriors. I don't know that. 
But I pray that we would actually take a Saturday night, that you actually build it into the schedule habit of your life. Whenever the text comes out, the order of service, you know what text is going to be preached on. We should read it. We should ask God to speak. We should pray for pastor. And then we should pray for one another. That we would not be just hearing, but we'd actually be engaging, receiving, actively receiving the word of God. Because it is that active reception that is actually part of the saving of our souls, that ongoing work of salvation. And in this text, as we're going to look beginning of verse 6 and moving forward, we're looking at a, a, a theme, and it, it fits with all I'm saying about the intentionality of the go. Go with intention to the lost. Go make disciples among all the people groups. Go intentionally. Be engaged. Build those relationships with lost people for the sake of the gospel. Go do that. So Paul is then calling on Timothy and in the midst of growing opposition in a Roman empire and all the cultural change, it's about to bring the end of his own life. He's going to give his life for the sake of the gospel. He calls on Timothy not to be ashamed. And you really see that call then in verse 8. As he says, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord. And remember, here's Christ's testimony of the gospel and it's resisted and it's rejected and he goes to a cross as the one proclaiming he is the only way of life. Don't be ashamed of that. Don't be ashamed of me, his prisoner. Paul's in prison for the sake of the gospel. His life will be taken for his gospel preaching. Don't be ashamed of that. Don't let the cancel culture and the potential suffering that might come, because one of the idols of an American culture is safety. Be safe, be secure, don't be risky. We're living in a, I mean, today, one of the things in that meeting comes out every year is we have a growing number of empty pulpits with no one to take them. Our populace worldwide is growing. There's a shortage internationally of missionaries. There's a shortage internationally of pastors because less and less people are actually feel, sensing the call of God and less and less parents trust God with their children and pray they would go in ministry. There's multiple facets to the problem, but here's the thing. We've been called to be safe because we can't create it. We've been called to go, engage, Trust Christ with our life, serve, and see what he does. To be unashamed of the gospel, to share, even as he says, in suffering. And so if we're going to do this, if we're actually going to engage with intentionality, then we have to, to cast off a culture of shame and learn to be bold witnesses for Christ. And so Paul is going to walk through a charge to Timothy. He's going to point back to his own example in the text that we're going to see. I'm going to try and draw out of this tech principles that I believe will help because I'm really seeking to answer and ask, ask this question and answer it. I think the text does. So one of the questions, one of the problems, sometimes what's the problem presented? What's the solution and the answer? And so here's one of those things. How can we cast off, now this really puts it in our context, cultural shame, although they knew what a shame culture was a lot more than even we do, and be bold witnesses for our king. I hope we'd agree we're supposed to be bold. I hope we'd agree we're supposed to be witnesses. So silence and apathy about this are unacceptable. We're pushed to both. But they're clearly unacceptable. So what's going to have to happen in our hearts? What do we need to do? What does God need to do 
So we overcome, cast off that shame, and actually become bold. And the first thing I'd suggest is we must stoke the fire of fervency. Paul would say in Romans 12 that we are to be fervent in spirit serving the Lord. Enthusiastic. I mean, don't you like to be around enthusiastic people? It's around Pastor Counterman, and he's leading a missions agency at the Arch, and one of the things that's contagious about it is, I mean, he's super excited about what God's doing, and why wouldn't he be? He's, he's now in Latin America planting churches, and this year they went from four to 20 churches planted, with church planters being supported on a two-year basis, and he's super excited, praying God's going to get them to 40 this next year. Jonathan Edwards is a, here's a great name, great name for a pastor. Jonathan Edwards is a church planter from out west. He is in his mid to late 70s. He's about to go plant another church. Folks, there's a whole lot of God's work going on all around. And there's men who are refusing to leave the saddle. So it's literally, he was a horse. I mean, he raised horses, broke them. Some of the things he did to supplement income and he invested in ministry, built. I mean, he's just a tremendous man of God. But he's burdened about churches in the West. And he went to now his pastor because he turned the last church plant he had. He just said, I, I think it's time for somebody else to lead this. I'm getting a little tired. And so he's been representing Northwest Baptist Missions for like three years since turning the church over. And he just went to his pastor and said, you know what? I think God has one more in me. And he's about to move and actually start the process of planting a church in his late 70s. So what do we do? We need to stoke the fire of fervency. How do we do that? By engaging in spirit-motivated and spirit-empowered ministry. You can't do it yourself. I can say, go out and do it. Go, go do it. Go be more intentional. Go be more bold witness. But you can't, you won't. Your flesh isn't going to do it. You're not going to overcome the fears of your flesh. You're not going to overcome the pressures of your culture. You're never going to do that alone. But praise God, you haven't been left alone. And Paul reminds Timothy, when he says, for this reason, I remind you, he's pointing back in the text, verse 5, he's talking about Timothy's faith. Uh, you can look there in 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 5. He said, I'm reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that first dwelled in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. I mean, what an encouragement. Timothy's in the middle of the battle, and here's Paul, the apostle, who, who walked with him and discipled him, and he's saying, here's what I know about you, Timothy. Your faith's the real deal. It's real. I've seen the work of God in your life. I've seen the transformation that God has done. Folks, the, the transformation of your life ought to be evident. People ought to be able to look and see that there's actually been a work of God in your life that you're growing your commitment to Christ. It should be evident. I, I remember when God called me to ministry and I went on staff back in Michigan and fairly young in the Lord and started seminary and started being trained as, a, I mean, as their business manager. Pastor Harding put me in a safe place, be my business manager. All right? Can't do too much damage there, at least hopefully. So, but as I began to grow and as uh, one of the things I'll never forget, this has stuck with me, it's 30 years ago. Uh, one of the guys was a deacon in the church. I played basketball with him, played softball with him. Uh, and we were, had been in the church for four years. God called me to ministry. I left, came on staff. Then five years later, when I finished seminary, they ordained me. And he testified at the ordination service that he, when I first surrendered called to preach, he went, huh, is this guy really called? 
And then he could testify, he said, I've seen God's transformation of this man's life, and he meets the qualifications for ministry. I'll never forget that. He's with the Lord now. Folks, people should see. Paul could say to Timothy, he's really using a word to say there's no, there's no play acting, it's genuine, it's real. And he reminds Timothy then that he is that of his faith, that which is a gift of God, and that in that faith comes the Spirit of God to dwell in you and testify to you that you are God's child, and the Spirit has come to you, filling you, actually gifting you for the work God has called you to do, Timothy. I'm reminded of your faith, it's real. Timothy, remember who you are. God has called you and God has equipped you. And he leans into that and reminds him of the Spirit's ministry. And Paul would say in in 1 Corinthians 12 that we are empowered by one and the same Spirit, those gifts that God gives. And he's pointing to those gifts as, as a grace gift, as something given by the grace of God. You don't earn ministry, it's a gift. You don't earn gifts, they're a gift. The gifts weren't given so you could go build a career. God isn't just taking those natural gifts and and furthering them for the sake of a career in a community or anything else. Those gifts are always connected to the church and always connected to the advance of the gospel. And every believer has been gifted by God. You've been gifted and called. In fact, in Romans chapter 12, and I think I put that text, here you see in 1 Corinthians 12, 11, you're empowered by the Spirit. Romans having gifts. Just stop. It's unqualified. I mean, he's talking to believers, but what he's saying, having gifts, you have gifts. You have been gifted by God. That, and he says, according, he says, that differ according to the grace given to us. He tells us what to do. Sit on your thumbs, do nothing, because hallelujah, you've been gifted. Draw attention to yourself because you've been gifted. Go build an industry because you've been gifted. He said, use them. Use them. And he goes on to talk about some of those gifting and he's calling on us to use. Every believer has been gifted by God so we can engage in the work of the ministry. The being a disciple who actually makes other disciples. It's the mission the Great Commission. And we've been called on to use those gifts. And so as we look and think through this theme of being unashamed and overcoming the shame of a culture and all of that to go forward, I hope Romans 1.16 just rings out in our ears. Paul's testimony, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God and the salvation of all who believe. I mean, I, I doubt if we took a poll this morning coming in, how many people here would like to experience the power of God? You'd be like, nah, not me. I'm good. Good right where I am. Don't want any of that power of God stuff. Might make my life change. I think most of us say, yeah, of course I want to see the power of God in my life. The gospel is the power of God. Are you engaged in gospel ministry? Who are you sharing the gospel with? There's nothing more powerful than seeing somebody spiritually dead raised to life. Guess what? You get to take part in that. God has promised there's other sheep out there, hasn't he? Has he not? 
There are other sheep he must bring into the fold. We have life and breath because there's still people God plans to save and they're all around you and you're supposed to get to know them, love them, show them the love of Christ. It's not the one-off, although I'm fine with you giving tracts and that's all the time you get. Fine, take the one opportunity to share Christ. You never know what God's gonna do. You may be just part of the sowing and somebody else is gonna be the reaping. But folks, there are people you and I are supposed to love to Christ. Let's use the gifts that God has given. Make full use of them. In fact, we're actually warned in 1 Thessalonians not to quench the Spirit. There's the other side. God has given you gifts. Use them. Make full use of them. Understand their purpose. Use them for the purpose they're intended. And with the confidence that God actually is going to work through his gospel to open blinded eyes, to take out that heart of stone, God is going to do his work. So go with confidence and don't quench the Spirit. So, so come, and even as God's promised to meet with us, we come. I hope you came with the expectance that God's going to actually work. You came to the house of God today. And I thank you. So many of you, the email went out. As soon as the email went out and said Pastor Greg wasn't preaching, I was wondering how many people were going to show up. <laughs> thank you. Because we come to hear the word, and I'm so thankful for his ministry of the word to us. But do we come to respond to that word or just to hear it? Do we come to say, God, you know, there's things you need to do in my life. Because if I was already perfect, I'd be in heaven. And I'm far from there. But I know God is working, and I come under the sound and the authority of the word to say, God, speak to my heart and make me more like Christ. We stoke the fire of fervency. We stoke that fire by spirit-motivated ministry that we actually yield to the Spirit, ask the Spirit to work in our hearts, direct our steps. And then we fan that flame uh, to, by saying no to our flesh and yes to the Spirit. I want the Spirit to work. That means there's some battle that's going to be going on. And he's just reminding us of that. He said, God hasn't given us, for God gave us a spirit not. So this is what we haven't had of fear. And he's really doing a unique thing here. It's kind of interesting because he uses a different word for fear than standard word. And so this word for fear is the idea of being cowardice or timid. So don't lose confidence in the gospel. The power wasn't in you. You don't have to be the greatest evangelist. You don't have to be the most gifted evangelist. But all of us, even whether you got the gift of evangelism or not, are supposed to do the work of evangelism. We're supposed to be engaged in intentional going to lost people with the gospel for the purpose of making disciples. We are called to do that. And the promise is that God will meet with us in the going and the proclaiming to open blinded eyes and draw people to himself. That's the promise. And if we believe the promise of God that he's secured you for eternal life, has he not secured you for witness now? So trust the promise of God. Look what he says. He hasn't given you a spirit. Your fear comes from your fallenness, not from your spirit. The spirit God gave to man was a spirit that God created to trust him, love him, know him, and serve him. That's the kind of spirit God gave you. And he points at first to the spirit God created us with. And he's saying the spirit God gave you wasn't one given over to fear. Fear is actually a product of flesh, of fallenness. Don't yield to that because remember, God has now given you another spirit, 
the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit now dwells with that weak spirit, your fallen spirit, and now actually is the one renewing you in the image of Christ and is enabling you to actually live with power, love, and self-control. It's part of the fruit of the Spirit's ministry in your life. That's why I say, say yes to the Spirit and no to your flesh. Your flesh will cause you to shrink back in fear. Your flesh will cause you to be ashamed of the gospel. The flesh will allow you to be silent and justified. The flesh will cause you to be complacent about seeing, not seeing people in this community saved. We exist in traveler's rest. There's a community here that needs to be reached. We need to plan intentionally how we're going to reach this community with Christ. This community, our Jerusalem, needs to be evangelized. Amen? And we actually have been put here, placed here to do that very work. We're going to be complacent? We're going to make excuses? Busy. We're all busy. I'm learning a whole new level of busy. I'm learning the flow of semesters as a professor, a whole new professor life. But you know what that doesn't do for me? What it doesn't do for me is give me an excuse to ignore this community. It doesn't give me an out to say, I'm so busy doing this training stuff that I don't have to obey myself. It doesn't do that for me. I've got to find ways, and this is one of the burdens of my heart, so I'm sharing it. You're welcome. I, I was always taught it was kind to share. So. But I've been praying. A couple students, and we've been talking that God has really burdened our hearts. We need to find avenues, doors into this community to build relationships for the gospel. I'm praying that way. I'm praying for God to open those doors and to send me forth with boldness and wisdom. So I'm inviting you to join me in that prayer. That God put Gateway Baptist Church here to reach Traveler's Rest. Let's reach it with intentionality, with purpose. Let's not allow complacency to slip in. Let's not bow to our flesh and be afraid. Let's pray with Paul that we'd be strengthened with power through his spirit in our inner man. And really live with confidence that the spirit of God who dwells in us is the one that gives us power, that overcomes our fear, that gives us love to actually care about the lost, that gives us self-control to say no to the busyness of life that we might engage in gospel ministry. The spirit of God dwells in me and greater is he who dwells in me than he who dwells in the world. I cannot say I don't have time. I should not say I do not care. And I must not yield to my fallen flesh and be afraid. Did we just lose power? Sorry. There was a little drop or sag, I don't know. So we stoke by saying yes, saying no to our flesh, these are just texts that you're familiar with. God's poured his love out. You can't say you can't love others like Christ loves you because God's love's been shed in your heart, been lavished upon you. So we can love others just like Christ loved us to himself. We can do that with others. And so we must stoke the fire of fervency by embracing. This is probably the hardest. Embracing suffering for the gospel is a good gift. Embracing suffering for the gospel is a good gift. Note those text. Here's that direct command. Don't be ashamed. Don't. 
don't allow it. And he's not suggesting that Timothy is and now needs to get over it. He's really putting a continual reality. It's a present tense command. Never fear. Never, re- never fall back. Don't lean into your flesh. Don't allow the pressures of a culture around you. Don't allow the rising suffering for the, for the gospel ministry to cause you to pull back. Don't do that. Don't be ashamed of the Lord. Don't be ashamed of, of Paul. And there's the invitation, which is one of those invitations we'd rather say no to. Come join me in suffering. No, that's okay. Really rather not sign up for that. And it's not just saying suffering in general. You know what? You can't escape suffering. You might escape not suffering for the gospel's sake, but in a fallen world, you're not escaping suffering. I mean, as you you just read through your Bible, you'll see when the people of God are obeying God, they enjoy the blessings of God, and when they stop, all of a sudden life gets super hard. And even while they're obeying, it's still hard, but they're seeing God answer prayer, God delivering, and they're enjoying the blessing of God through the fruit of obedient faith. And then when they begin to break that down, life doesn't get easier. You say, well, if I don't witness, the world's not going to hate me. Yeah, it will, because they're all selfish sinners anyway. You're never going to appease them. They're never going to satisfy them. They'll use, abuse you, throw you on, go to the next thing. Life in the corporate world can be doggy dog. Life in the Christian world can be that way. We allow corporate principles and principles of success, and we will mistreat and misabuse people, and it will happen. You will be taken advantage of. I don't like that. Well, you're not going to avoid suffering in a falling world. Sinners are sinners, and they're going to sin. And if you're in the way of their, their, their prized possession, get ready. Now, are you going to suffer for the right things or for the wrong things? Because you're not going to avoid suffering. I'd much rather suffer for the right things, wouldn't you? This is a simply, simple prayer I've learned to pray through years of pastoral ministry because opposition comes. Here's one of the things I know. The more Gateway obeys God, gets in this community, starts seeing people saved, the more opposition will rise. I know that. So why do we want to do that? Can't we just be comfortable, love each other, and I'll be good enough? No, it won't. Because eventually our selfishness will still destroy us. Because then we're going to fight about something else and we're going to have to have our own way. Why don't we get in the community and see what God does? And when opposition rises, that's okay. Because then we're suffering for the sake of the gospel, not for our selfishness. We suffer for the gospel's sake. And we do it by the power of God. You want to experience the power of God? Avoid suffering. No, it's not what it says. It says share. Told you kind people share. Paul's sharing. And he's actually sharing the power of God. Your commitment to the gospel demands that we engage a culture of lost people without expecting them to say thank you. But expecting God to work and save some. Suffer for the sake of the gospel by the power of God. You weren't left alone. Spirit hasn't left you. He won't. Greater is he is in you. You can witness. You can be bold. Just ask the simple question, not asking for a response, but when's the last time you prayed for boldness? When's the last time you prayed for an open door to share the gospel? Go with intentionality to the lost to make disciples. Be intentional, purposeful, plan, purpose in your heart. 
Get involved with unsaved people's lives. Share Christ with them. That's the Great Commission. And you can because of who dwells in you. The Spirit of God. So we stoke the fervency. You can see Paul's attitude about suffering. It's not new. It's here in Philippians. It's been granted to you like a gift that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe but suffer for his sake. Don't run from suffering like it's a bad deal. I'm not asking you to put a kick me sign on your back. What I'm asking you to do is engage with boldness in the gospel and where suffering comes, praise God for it. We must stoke the fire of fervency by remembering our calling. You can see that in this text, verses 9 through 11. It's a holy calling. He says, who has saved us and called us. And so this is Paul reminding Timothy of their common faith in Christ. And if you share that common faith in Christ, if yours is a sincere faith, the Spirit of God dwells in you, testifies to you, you're God's child, then you have to remember, you have this holy calling. It's a call to holiness. Be holy as I am holy, which is a call to devotion, full devotion to Christ. That's what it's a call to, full devotion to the ministry and mission to which he's entrusted to our care. That's your calling. You've been set apart as one holy unto God, like the temple vessels were to be used for no other purpose but worship. Your life has been called to Christ. You don't belong to you. You were bought with a price. So glorify, honor God with your life by being holy, fully set apart, devoted to him. And not... And he reminds us, and he kind of goes to a gospel in miniature in here. As he reminds us of our calling, Paul really kind of gives us a gospel in miniature in this text as he rehearses that it's never been because of works. It's not because of something valuable in me. And it is really all of God's purpose and his grace. And he's given us in Christ Jesus going all the way back as part of God's eternal plan, which blows our mind that that could even be true. And he's manifested this appearing through the appearing of Christ, our Savior. And note what he has done. He has abolished death and brought life. You don't need to be afraid. You don't need to bow to fear. What's the worst thing man can do to you? Take your physical life. The life God gave me in salvation is a life that man cannot quench. He cannot take what God has given. So you have no reason to fear. Death has been abolished. You have life in Christ. And the only way unsaved people are going to experience that is for you and I to go with intentionality and share that gospel message with them. And Paul would say, I'm appointed. You say, well, I'm not appointed a preacher, apostle, a teacher. That's fine. You're not necessarily. But you have been made a witness. If the Spirit of God dwells in you. You have been made a witness. And you've been given a field in which you're to witness. It starts in your Jerusalem. It doesn't end there. Some are going to be called to go outside of that. They're going to go to Judea. You know, there are a lot of communities around Traveler's Rest. There's other fields to be. You say, well, I, you know, getting to Traveler's Rest, some of you don't live in Traveler's Rest, you say, that might be a little far. You drive this far. Why do you assume your neighbor wouldn't? So I, I can't go to maybe Traveler's Rest. Well, you come to Traveler's Rest to worship. So do you think your neighbor or the people in the community you shop, you're like, well, they would never come that far. How do you know? Why are you content with that excuse? 
Be a witness where God planted you, amen? Be intentional. Get to know a neighbor. Get to know some place you shop. Love them to Christ. Be the witness God's called us to be. And then trust God with the fruit. God hasn't told you that you're going to save people. He told you to go witness to them and watch him work. See the power of God as you engage in gospel ministry to the lost. You know, in the second half of this section, Paul really turns to his own example. How is this true in Paul's life? And Paul's pointing back because he he's had Timothy, he's been, uh, been following Paul as Paul follows Christ. He's been a discipler who's made another disciple, and he commissions Timothy in the very next chapter to do exactly what Paul did with Timothy with other men. Find faithful men. Folks, as a congregation, our eyes should be peeled. You know, one of the great gifts God's given us is being around a college that actually wants to equip people for gospel ministry. Some people in this community don't necessarily see it as a gift. I do. Because there's a whole lot of young people that are there on purpose. I'm sure there's some that are not. I'm sure you students know some that are there for all kinds of wrong reasons. But there's a whole bunch of you there because you actually want to be equipped by God to do what God's called you to do. That's great news. Because you know what? We've been called by God to look out for you. To find you. To equip you. To walk alongside you. To help you be prepared to engage in effective gospel ministry that starts here before it ever goes out there. Praise God for that opportunity. And that's what Paul did, modeled for Timothy, calls Timothy on, but now as he pulls from his own example, there's just three quick points I think we need to hear. Because here's how we overcome our natural tendency, our fleshly tendency to fear. How do we overcome that? So we engage in ministry, engage fervently in gospel ministry. How do we do that? Well, we're only going to cast it off and engage when we first trust the Lord in whom, and I have, we have believed, I should have said, in whom we believe. Because as Paul said, when he says, I'm not ashamed, why is he not ashamed? Because I know, I know whom I believed, and I'm convinced that he's able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. And really, Paul's simply doing this, he's, he's using a, a perfective, a perfect verb. And it's a perfective tense. And you're saying, oh, what does that mean? Well, what it means is, God, I believed in Christ when I got saved. I still believe in Christ. And I will continue to believe in Christ. I was convinced the day I got saved. I will continue to be convinced. I will always be convinced. So he is not saying, I just believed something in the past. We haven't been called believeids. We are believers. The day you got saved wasn't the end of a journey. It was the beginning of a journey. It was the beginning of the God's calling to you when he opened your blinded eyes and gave you life, commissioned you, came to dwell in you, gifted you, and called you with a holy calling and now awaits your obedience to bless that effort with fruit. He's calling on you to trust him. You say you trusted him in salvation, then trust him in living. Trust him in witness. You were confident. Are you confident that the God who saved you will continue a good work in you till the day of Christ Jesus? Is that good work not going to make you a more effective witness? If I can be non-witnessing as a child of God and call myself spiritual, I have misdefined spirituality. I have misdefined maturity. 
I am convinced that my knowledge without obedience has made me spiritual when knowledge without obedience only makes me arrogant. That's why the Puritans would say, unless you meditate on truth, you'll never apply the truth to your heart. We are horrible at meditation because we are so busy and filled with noise. We keep the noise going all the time because we drowned out the Spirit's ministry by all the noise in our life. Stop. Get alone with God and ask God to speak to your heart. Take the truth God's convicted your heart and stay there until God shows you how to apply it. Don't be content hearers. You need to be doers of the word, doers of the work, unashamed of the one we've believed and do believe, confident. And that confidence in the question, and I'll probably never solve the debate, What is it that's been entrusted? Was it the gospel entrusted to Paul that will continue to be protected by the Spirit? True. Or is it Paul's trusting of his life to the one he's believed? I I lean that way. And he's simply saying this, though the world around you may be hostile and want to take your life for the cause of the gospel, no one's taking your life before God ordains it. So spend and be spent for the souls of men. You've been called with a holy calling. What are you going to do with it? Spend and be spent for the souls of men. Because we believe, we're confident, we trust that actually our lives are in his hand. And we serve him with that life until he calls us home. We cast off fear by following Christ's words. I think this is another way where we've kind of taken disciple. What's a disciple? One of those words is learner. They're learners, right? Yeah, they're learners. So we all become good learners. See, I'm a disciple. Disciple is inherently a follower who learns and obeys, does. Without the doing, you're not a disciple. You're a hearer who James says you're self-deceived here at that. So a follower of Christ hears the sound words, which produces a sound life, a life above reproach, and he actually engages in them. He does them. I was struck reading through the life of David. And reading through the life of David this week, rally yesterday, <laughs> anyway, doing a, a Bible reading program, and so doing mass chunks. Well, one of the things that struck me about David's life is you see early in his life, early in his ministry, is, he, is he's going to be king. He's constantly, you see this refrain, He asked Yahweh. He asked the Lord. He brought the priest in. They prayed. They sought the Lord's direction. The Lord told him what to do, and he went and did it. As the kingdom was established, and they're going forward, winning battle out of battle, eventually it stopped saying he asked Yahweh until he comes to the place where he actually stays home for battle. And then you know what happened next. And my point is, he's a man after God's own heart. He did that. Folks, if we ever... Stop following Christ's words. Sin will destroy us. It will deceive us. It will destroy us. The fruit of that sin never left David's household. The greatest heartaches he ever experienced were from that setting aside, asking Yahweh, and doing what God commanded. And lastly, Paul uh, reminds us to walk really by the Holy Spirit who dwells in us, and this is a charge to Timothy. And most ink is spilled on the side of it is that uh, guard the good deposit. But I think we're missing something. We are to guard it. But you know the way we've taken guard it 
as we theologically fortify. So we're going to be good with theology, but horrible in practice. And that's not what he's saying. He's not saying build your theological towers. I teach in a seminary, so I'm all for teaching. I'm all for good theology. I believe it. I think we got we got to destroy bad theology. That's part of the guard. So I, I'm engaged in that half of it. But if I think that's all of it, then I fail. In fact, I will fail to be a good seminary professor if I'm not actually doing what God's called me to do, which is to engage this culture with the gospel and see people saved, added to his church. If I'm not doing that, I am not a good seminary professor, and they ought to fire me, and that is recorded. I said that same thing as a pastor. I'll say that same thing now. We've been called to go. Not others go. Not give money so others can go. All those are great things. I want to support missions, but missions begins with you and I right here. And if we won't do missions right here, the church will soon not exist. And no one will be going. At least not from here. So we cast off fear and engage as we walk in the Spirit. And that's possible because the Spirit of God has come to dwell in you. Aren't you glad? See, it's overwhelming to think of my responsibility to go to lost people in this culture and share the gospel. They got all these objections. I don't know all the answers. You know the gospel, don't you? You know you don't need all the answers to their questions. Because the wisdom of this age is folly to God. But the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. Know the gospel. Know the gospel. Share Christ. Love people to Christ. Care enough to get involved. And the gold is not for you. I mean, I'd love for God to raise the next Jonathan Edwards up, or maybe you're the D.L. Moody of this area, and you go get a pulpit somewhere on the street, and everybody flocks to you, and the whole neighborhood gets saved. That would be awesome. But here's the deal. Over this year, will you pray earnestly, God, give me one, one person to love with the gospel, to share my faith with, and by your grace, may that person be saved. Will you give me one? Do you know, God may very well answer that prayer. And if that happened in just one, a year from now, this church would have double the number of people sitting here being challenged to go get just one. And maybe it takes two years. Maybe it takes three years. Maybe it takes your whole college career. Because you're busy at college, and you've got all the college demands and the schedules, and you're going to be busy, and it's going to be challenging to you. But that challenge does not excuse you. Because if you allow that, that, that challenge of busyness to excuse you from your responsibility to learn lost people and share Christ with them, it will just continue to be your pattern of life from post-college. It's not going to become different. Life does not get less busy. I know all college students hate me when I tell them that. My children, my own children said, Dad, we thought you were lying to us until we got married and had children and life began to really get busy. And then they're like, you never lied. No, you're right. So my point is, don't let the business of the now keep you from doing what God's called you to do. It actually is not a justifiable excuse, so quit accepting it. Go do what God's called you to do. Be intentional and watch God work. May we rejoice in seeing the power of God and drawing others to himself. Let's pray.